Welcome to the Winning with Shopify podcast. This is the podcast to help you scale your Shopify store into a money-making machine. This episode is brought to you by Retention.com. Retention.com helps Shopify stores make more money by growing their email lists 20 times faster and sending 10 to 15 times more abandoned cart emails. Want to learn more? Check out Retention.com. Book a demo to get two times more audience credits for the first 60 days. Now, over to your host, Nick Truman. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Winning with Shopify podcast. For anyone that's not tuned in before, welcome. My name is Nick. I've been running the podcast for several years now. It'll be three years in June, so two and a half years in, and we've had some phenomenal episodes. For anyone that's tuned in before, you will know that we are in the middle of a series right now all about retention and retaining customers and building lifetime value. This is obviously in partnership with retention.com, as you probably just heard in the intro, and if you've been tuning in for a while, you would have seen that all the way through. If you haven't been tuning in for a while, I highly recommend 1st of December, or the first Friday of December, it's the first episode we launched on this. So if you're interested in customer retention and building lifetime value, go and check out some of our previous episodes and also obviously check out the tool retention.com. It is awesome. And just a flag, I'm sorry to all of our EU and UK listeners. Um, I should have said this more throughout the series. We covered it in the first episode. You can't use retention.com in the UK and we are gutted about that, but you can in the US. Absolutely fine in the US. So make sure you go and uh, go and check that out. Today, I've got one and another very special guest. I've got two people with me today. We don't do this very often, um, but I'm super excited about this. They're both from a company called Portland Leather Goods. And I'm I'm going to introduce, first of all, the CMO, and his name is McCoy. So McCoy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having us. We're really excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, McCoy, we'll start with you, and then we'll come on to Matt in a second. But McCoy, tell us a bit about your background, a little bit about Portland Leather Goods as well. Sure. Uh, I joined Portland Leather Goods almost five years ago. It'll be five years in April. Uh, it was a much different company when I started. Uh, we were founded in a garage, like hopefully most great companies are. And then uh, worked our way up to this workshop that we're sitting in here now. Um, back when I started, we used to make everything right here in the workshop in Portland. You could walk in the building and all you could hear was sewing machines and clicker presses going on, chopping and sewing all the leather goods. Um, lots changed since then. COVID uh, kind of did a number on us. So we have uh, since moved a lot of our production out of this building, uh, but we are happier and healthier than ever. So we've been growing and growing and growing. It's been a wild ride. I uh, started as a digital media specialist, just kind of a random nondescript title off a job posting on Craigslist and we've worked our way up to where we are now. So we've been doubling each and every year. It's hard to do that more than a few times in a year and not be, you know, a decent sized company. So uh, we're happy, we're healthy, we're, we love it. I love it here. Nice, nice. And supply chains, we will come back to that. That is a really valid point and something we've covered a lot in the podcast. Yeah. We'll come back to that in a second <laughs> and making products. Um, but obviously, without further ado, Matt, you are the marketing manager there at um, Portland Leather Goods as well. Welcome to the show. Um, and can we get the same sort of thing from you? What, what's your background? How long have you been with the business? Sure, Nick. I've been here just over uh, two years now. Uh, came from print advertising and then I moved into a digital role at my previous job, which was oddly enough, a printer. And then just two years ago, we've exploded even then, like McCoy was talking about four years ago, and then two years and doubling and doubling. Um, so it's been a great ride. It's been really fun to see all the big changes that have been happening. So really excited to be here. Nice, nice. And obviously print is a massive sidestep. And you said you had a digital role, but in print previously. Um, it is amazing to see how many people in marketing have actually come from that background as well. So I'm sure you've got lots of good stories to add. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll certainly come on to some of those as, as we go through. But um, come back to you, McCoy. Let, let's, let's talk about supply chains. And Matt, feel free to jump in with anything else on this as well. But um, 
we, we've, we did a whole series where we were asking merchants specifically and about a year ago or possibly a couple of years back, specifically about supply chains. And the reason this came up was actually because of a lot of drop shippers. And we were talking to successful brands who were saying, never drop ship, you need to own your supply chain. So tell us a bit more about that. You said you're bigger and happier than ever at the moment. Like what, obviously COVID drew up part of the change and the reason for change. But how did all of that come about? Like what did you guys actually do? What did you learn along the way? Yeah, we were pretty fortunate through COVID. Um, we kind of saw the warning signs like really early. And then fortunately, we saw kind of like the potential that was coming on the, the tail end of COVID to like really take advantage of the opportunity, like when everyone was feeling a little down and try to explode. So our supply chain, fortunately, is is decently healthy in that um, we've only ever used the best cow hides we could ever possibly get our hands on. Fortunately for us, those come as a byproduct of the American meat industry. So there is not a, a single cow in the United States that is uh, harvested for its leather. They're all harvested for me. So the best cowhides from, come from the United States. They're then sent to Leon, Mexico or various other places in Mexico. Mexico is a huge, huge leather um, industry capital of the world. So the majority of our materials were fortunately pretty secure because we're again, we're going from the United States down to Mexico and then back. Uh, we did have quite a bit of disruptions when it comes to things like hardware or various other things. So just in general, a lot of things slowed down. And then even the leather industry was affected in certain ways. Um, Certain chemicals that are used in the tanning process had delays and um, setbacks and alternates uh, uh, substituted in that caused some disruptions. But for the most part, it, we were pretty healthy. Where we really faced a lot of issues was actually like being able to keep up with the demand as far as production. As I mentioned, we were working here in a little studio. So when the COVID pandemic hit pretty hard, it's obviously hard to be congregated in here, you know, uh, elbow to elbow with somebody here next to a sewing machine. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, especially in a town like Portland, it's really hard um, to find people who are talented sewers. Uh, it's not mm. a, a well-maintained skill through the decades. And so we ran into a bunch of issues with that. Um, fortunately, we were able to kind of swing again closer to where our leather is actually being tanned in Leon, Mexico. And we were able to start up a production company there. So we, we did what most people wouldn't do. We actually started our own factory instead of just <laughs> wow. working for a factory. Uh, which has been quite the wild ride. Um, but I'm happy to report that that, um, that business, that company is is super happy. They're super healthy. We're incredibly proud of that. And that's been, I mean, literally probably the biggest and the best shift that we, we made during COVID. And it's allowed for expansion of the company and growth and things like that. So uh, while we did hit supply chain issues, we came out the other end of it, like with the best case scenario. And I think that was, again, that's just looking ahead at what opportunities were available and not, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, got hit and they kind of stayed down and we try to get back up as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And we will get on to customers and lifetime value and retention in a sec. I've got one more question on this as well, because you've touched on something quite interesting where you've said that you've obviously come out the other side of this and it's, you know, one of the best things ever. But obviously it could be, you know, there's no pain, no gain at the time. Um, but I, I guess one of, the, one of the points to make is you must have had so much more flexibility now that you own the, the production chain because you can develop new products quickly. You don't need to talk to a factory and explain how to make it. You're just like, guys, you are the factory. What's wrong with making the product at the moment? And they'll tell you straight away, this is difficult. That's the number one thing that comes in for repairs and we could fix it like this. And it's, I guess you could just say to them, cool, crack on. Whereas there's that disconnect when you're using someone else to manufacture. Yeah, that's been, it really is like a superpower. Again, uh, we kind of had polished that, that process quite early being as we were designing and making all the products 30 feet away from our desk, you know, with a, a guy sewing them in the corner. Yeah. Uh, so we were really used to like this incredibly lean process. In fact, um, most of the time we didn't actually carry inventory. An order would come in um, primarily through Etsy at, in the early stages or, um, and then later into Shopify heavy into 2019, 2020. Um, when Shopify became the dominant platform, but um, an order would come in and we would make that item on the spot. 
So we were incredibly, incredibly lean um, at all times. That, that came with its uh, downsides, right? Where if you had a surge in demand, like it was really hard to get, make, make sure no one's sick this week, right? Because we got to make all these products. But that lean process, I think, is really what ended up allowed us to transfer that production system down into Leon and, and inside our own company. We understood that so intimately, which I think is, a again, a huge cheat code compared to somebody who's just ordering a product from a supplier. We were so used to actually making the products ourselves and seeing that process. So it was really it was really helpful to transfer that lean process. And, it, and it's still lean today. As you mentioned, we're really close to the product development side. If we were really motivated, and a lot of times we have you know long-term production plans that would um, interfere with this. But if we were really motivated, we could get a product to market in just uh, a couple months. So you know, two months or so, eight weeks, if we were really, really motivated, the demand might might sell out. But nonetheless, it's nice to be that lean and to be that uh, in um, partnership with our, with our production, again, being it as it's a part of our company. So I think it's, it's so powerful. And the other thing you touched on very briefly, which and we'll move on to customers now, I think. Um, but yeah, the, the final point to make as well is just about um, excess inventory, you know, from any financial perspective if you're sitting on excess inventory it's money that's locked it's money you can't spend because it's locked in products and then if you can't sell those products it's a loss because you've paid to manufacture them so i think having having a low inventory that that's quick to replenish means that you're you're selling at any you know any sort of given speed that you're producing therefore it's not costing you anything to do i know certainly when i ran a shopify store years ago we would buy in a massive shipping container of stuff and then we had to try and sell it and then naturally, when it was nearly sold, it was like, oh, no, we need to order another one. <laughs> and it was just this constant. And it would take another sort of two or three months to be manufactured and arrive. And it was such a problem. Um, you know, we either had too much stock or too little at all times. So our cash flow was just terrible. We've had too much cash or not enough cash. So um, it certainly sounds like you guys have made some, some really good decisions on that. So leaning in then to customer growth, customer acquisition, let's set the scene a little bit. Like, I guess a good question to start with is, what are some of the key things you guys have done that have contributed to your growth over those years? beyond what we've spoken about with with supply chains and, and manufacturing yeah sure i think one of the biggest things there is uh we've diversified into so many different channels within since mccoy mentioned going down to mexico and opening up that studio there from pinterest as mccoy can touch on later to way heavier into facebook google email is just exploding sms exploding a loyalty program and then uh reutilizing Facebook groups, which started popping up more during COVID and building out that community and just building a really strong community of customers so that they can all talk to together together because obviously word of mouth is hands down going to be your best marketing. So yeah, diversifying those channels has been a huge thing for us at Portland Wild Goods, which is really nice. Let's go on a really quick tangent on that because you just mentioned, you mentioned Meta and you've mentioned Facebook, but Facebook groups I know, I know a lot of people see these groups and go like, oh, look, a whole group of target customers. How do I sell to them? What, what's your strategy been with Facebook groups in particular? Yeah, I mean, we're pretty much hands off in, in terms of like we built a insiders group, PLG insiders. And then from there, we just kind of let all the customers and anybody who, even if you're not a customer, talk to each other, relate with each other on a daily basis. Like, oh, if, even if it's not about leather bags or leather footwear, they're talking about like their daily lives. You know, it's very organic. It feels very natural. And that has been extremely explosive for us, which is awesome. Um, and McCoy can talk about how it kind of started with PLG groupies. Yeah, we, we really saw the potential for Facebook. Like our Facebook group is outstanding. If you're a marketer listening to this or however you might be, I would recommend joining our Facebook group, PLG Insiders. Um, we get several hundred posts a day. 
We're doing 25,000 comments a week and up to 60 to 80,000 reactions, be it likes or what have you, um, per week as well. And it's just growing like wildfire. Um, that really started kind of as a result of having our finger on the pulse from ads advertisers and seeing that we were getting a lot of comments on ads. We then created these characters who are an amalgamation of the different dogs' names that run around our workshop. Uh, that's really <laughs> our social media personalities. And so nice. we have different characters. They're not actually real people. And so that allows them to kind of, you know, be free and be, you know, enthusiastic in a way that they don't have to, you know, personally um, vouch for under their personal profiles. So they started engaging with those people on advertisements. And so we started to build what was essentially like a forum board in the comment section of our advertisements. We would run creative for a long time where most people might believe in like a creative exhaustion. We were like, oh my gosh, you know, we had this, this comment, this post has a thousand comments on it. Like we're going to run this till, till, you know, the wheels fall off basically. That slowly morphed into um, that conversation, like naturally migrating elsewhere. We were very fortunate that there was already a group dedicated to another brand, which I'll probably avoid naming just for the sake of it. So it became the Portland Leather Goods slash brand group. Long story short, they eventually kicked the other brand's name and identity out of the group. This is all organic, by the way. We had nothing to do with this. And it just became the Portland Leather Goods Groupies. Just so we're clear, there was another company running a group, you guys joined, and they got kicked out, the original brand. It's in so many words. So this was a self-made fan group of this other brand. And it's a, it's a large, okay, popular okay. national yeah, yeah, yeah. brand. So this was a fan nice. club, essentially, right? And it had quite a bit of members at the time. I think it was 8,000 or so. Hmm. So they kicked that group essentially out. They were like, okay, we've, we've had our fill. We're done talking about this group. And so we were left. We weren't, again, we weren't running it at all. We had this group of about 8,000 people dedicated to Portland Leather Goods hmm. inside. Being, they, they called themselves the groupies. That was the brand, uh, the group name. Okay. Um, we let that rock for probably eight months by itself, eight, 10 months. Um, we would sort of, you know, feed it organically, like, you know, toss some insider information in there every once in a while. But we were very, very hands off. We wanted it to be a community. We then launched our own Facebook group early in um, last year. early last, last year, year, last year, March 2020. And since then, it just has exploded. So we're, um, are we, we're either just hit or we're, we're approaching 50,000 yeah. uh, members. And the conversation in there is just wild. And that's really, like we, we mentioned, um, that community comes off the, the back of what are, is our product strategy, which I think kind of touched back to your original question is, um, and this is um, all credit to our owner and founder, Curtis Matsko. Curtis is not an, an egotistical person in the sense that we try to create as much price per value in the product as possible. So if you look at our products, we sell them for cheaper than almost anybody out there. We use higher quality materials. We do better construction. We sell them for any cheaper than anyone out there. Wow. That pleasant experience of having like, oh my gosh, I paid this many dollars and I got this much value for the product has just created like a cult following. And so it, we really owe that product strategy. That's the success for the community. Because if it was imbalanced in the other way where people were paying too much and not getting the value out of it, we wouldn't have this cult following. But People are so excited about what it is we offer, and it really is a fantastic product. Um, as soon as you pick it up, you feel that. And so they need somewhere to talk about it. They need somewhere to have a community. They need somewhere to trade and buy and sell and things like that. So it's been fantastic. Wow. And I think, I mean, so many points you've touched on there that I think are just brilliant. And they're similar things we've had on the podcast before, but in a very different way. So we, we talk a lot about you need a good product. And I know the word good is so subjective, but the, the fact you guys have that product is obviously why the, the, the whole Facebook group um, scenario, shall we call it, or incident is, is a result of that. People like your products. They want to engage 
engage with those products. And I definitely feel like there's a lot of brands out there that they have a good range of products, but not a great range. There's nothing unique about them. They're not selling them in a unique way. They don't have that story, um, which, which then means customers will not be driven to do this sort of thing. I, I love the fact as well you were talking about that our products are cheaper and better made. That was very much, I, I read a whole book about how the US adopted the Japanese kind of quality cost less culture. I think it was Ford Motor Cars it all sort of started with. But yeah, so it's a fascinating story that actually um, just paying more doesn't always get you more. In a lot of scenarios, it does. You know, you pay more to get a better seat on some sort of transport, like a plane or whatever. Um, but certainly when it comes to goods, it depends on where they've come from. And actually, if you guys can get that message across that we make all our own stuff. So if you're paying us, you're just paying us, which actually means it costs less because we're all one unit. There's not sort of three or four different profit streams that need to be created in this. It's just one. But yeah, the Facebook groups thing, I think it sounds amazing. I think there's some really inspiring stuff in there that I think more brands should uh, should definitely get involved in. Um, now, we've mentioned email and SMS. And obviously, you guys are a retention.com customer, aren't you? How do you guys... I'm not going to ask you, how do you find retention.com? Because we've had them on here already. We know what, we know what the, the product does and how it works. Um, how do you guys use that data? So you get the data of everyone coming on the site. How do you guys use it? You know, What do some of the, the user journeys look like off the back of that? What do some of the email campaigns look like? So a lot of our advertising top of the funnel, whether it's Facebook or Pinterest, Pinterest is really product focused, product driven. You know, it's beautiful product. The leathers, the browns, everything just pops on a screen. Uh, so we definitely lean a lot of our advertising that way. So then when a user comes to the site, they clicked on some sort of product ad probably 90% of the time. And then what we can do with that user, that anonymous user, once we find their identifiable email address or whatever it may be, I can put them into certain campaigns, product campaigns, send them campaigns to see, get engagement to see, oh, are they opening? Are they clicking? Are they going to place an order off the first or second email that I send them? And again, they're obviously tagged with their source. So I'm able to segment within Clavio and figure out where should that customer go along the journey? So if they're opening and they're, and I can see they're engaged, but they haven't placed an order yet, they need to be in a different flow, right? So then I get them in like a kind of a welcome like flow uh, slightly different from the regular form pop-up welcome flow. And then from there, I keep track of that five to six email flow. And again, I'm watching their journey as they come in, come out of that flow and uh, just trying to gauge which campaign does that customer need to be in next. Because uh, at this point, we we're sending a lot more campaigns than we did in 2022. And that kind of started late Q3 uh, when we signed up with retention. And it's been great. So yeah, I mean, we've been able to push a millions of more emails and it definitely helps gauge the customer way faster by sending a high frequency of emails and getting them out of a flow faster or putting them into the, their proper segments much faster, just sending way more emails. And that's kind of the approach we've taken and it's worked great. And this is such a big and very old email question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. See, it sounds like you guys were sending not a lot of emails previously, you've now got way more people to target in different stages of their journey, more, pe more people to hit, therefore more segmentation. And I think that is part of the up upside of retention is I can now get email addresses of almost everyone that's been on the site as opposed to just previously the ones that filled out a form or bought a product. Correct. So I guess, I guess the, the, the big question here is how often are you sending now? And, and I guess a sub-question, do you, do you find there's a balancing point? Have you managed, um, we've all had bad marketing days. Have you found that point where you've sent too many and you've gone, oh my gosh, the unsubscribe rates now are crazy? Or do you find actually as long as the story's strong, it's all good? Like how, how are you finding all of that? Sure. So I would say like in 2022, for context, we probably sent two emails a month. Okay. Sale emails. 
the and then obviously we had flows running, regular flows running, um, whether that be browse abandonment or cart abandonment um, flows. Yeah, yeah. But uh, again, late Q3 of 2022, we started at one a day because our email list was sub a million. It was sub 600,000 profiles. Okay. So we started at one a day because I had to mix in. I didn't want people actually getting one email a day from us because um, that can definitely get nuanced. But the whole yeah. goal of the one a day email was to maintain a pulse on like spam rate, on subscribe rate, things like that, and really adhering so that our domain authority, we're not shrinking. Our deliverability was remained high. In those first couple of weeks, if they went directly into a flow, the spam rate was was higher because we didn't mix engaged customers that we already had in, within that flow. Yeah. So then we pivoted. We talked with the team over at retention, and what we we pivoted towards was a campaign first strategy, and then a flow strategy, like I mentioned earlier on. So what we would do with mixed engaged customers with those anonymous traffic that we gather from retention. And that would help reduce the spam rate. And then it would reduce the unsub rate because there'd be more people in that pool that were opening and clicking that we knew already worked. And our um, our spam rate went way down. Mm-hmm. And then as far as the unsubscribe rate, definitely a little bit higher than it's been in the past. But my belief and, and the team at retention, you know, unsub, if they do not want to hear from you, totally fine. You can leave the ecosystem of Clavio, that's okay. We want the people that are engaged, opening, that want to see the product on a every other day basis and things like that. So yeah, yeah, definitely. I, something you've hit on there that I think is really key, and I, and I hear clients that we work with talk about this all the time, is they're always scared. And I've said to clients before, send one a day, but not to everyone, because it, from from your own personal perspective, in terms of managing that email, now you're sending one a day. It starts to become a bit more like advertising, doesn't it? Because it's now real time. I'm sending every day. I send an email. I get in the next morning and see what was the result of that email. What did I learn? What can I do differently? And you start to build that flow, which is cool. I think a lot of brands that certainly ones that I've spoken to, they're, they're scared to send more emails because they think they'll annoy people um, and lose them. And what you've just said, I think is really key of, well, if they don't want to engage anyway, they're a waste of time on our email list. So let's lose a big chunk of them on the basis that the ones we don't lose are now going to be buying way more products. And there's probably a good amount of people in anybody's list who are sitting there going, if you just sent me a good product, a good offer, something new, I am keen to buy, but you're just not talking to me enough. For sure. And I'm not going to lie. I think we were a little hesitant at first too. Mm. And it's a small, nimble team of craft designers and then uh, these two dudes. (laughs) And and so like, it was definitely out of the realm Mm. for us to do like one a day. We've since moved on from one a day because the list has grown so much that I am able to mix throughout the week where it can be like two or three emails a week versus one a day. But yeah, at first it was kind of like, Oof, that's a lot of emails. But really <laughs> you don't need a ton of emails. You just need a ton of different segments and you can reuse that email, switch out the header. What we ended up doing with the graphic designers was actually building out probably anywhere from 10 to 15 different templates that were just like, solid, ready to go, plug and play, move a block here, move a block here, drop a new header in here. So like, oh, let's do a product focus template with this product. Have this email for me in two hours. Boom. So we were able, actually, it's helped us a lot with the process of building these creative assets, which has been kind of like a 
nice little win on the side. And last question, possibly only for now on email, but the last one is, how, how do you segment? Like, how do you, say someone's got 500,000 signups like you guys had before you started scaling things last year. Someone's got half a million people in there. How do you segment? How do you know to segment? How do you start going, okay, this, these people here want this, these guys want this? Where do, where do you start with that? Do you just start sending emails, looking at the data? Do you profile them? Do you use another system to get some more information on them? Like, where, where do you go? So, uh, Another platform we use is Yapo, and that actually has helped a little bit with segmenting uh, certain people like our insiders. It's like we don't technically have the exact data of who an insider is. Sure. This is just an example. But we have it as one of the campaigns so people can get points for joining the insiders. And then I would know who's in the insiders, their email address. So that's just like one segment. So I know like those people are going to be the, the highest, most engaged customer that we have. And then I can kind of use that as a as a standard for like, what does a super engaged customer who places a few orders every quarter look like, right? So then I use that kind of as the top tier. And then from there, I can use other campaigns within that platform and use those email addresses and be like, well, this person places like once a quarter or, or once a year. So then how do, what kind of emails does this person need? What is the look like within Clavio for that segment? There's a lot of segments in my Clavio. <laughs> I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. Especially adding since Q4. But yeah, it's great. So I think, I mean, some of the things you've hit on there that I think are really key then is looking at the frequency that people are ordering, whether they're signed up to your loyalty program. You can mention Yopo as much as you want, by the way. They sponsor the podcast at least twice, possibly three times now. Oh, okay. Oh, great. Good. All right. I was going to say, that's probably going to be dropped out. Yopo are cool. We're also partners of theirs. We work with them a lot. Same, same as Trustpilot, which is quite ironic because we have both. Um, but yes, yeah, so Yopo's loyalty program. Um, Again, I think it's a really smart thing to do actually to link that with Clavio to go, actually, if you are subscribed to loyalty. And I guess another thing you can look at as well is how much people use the loyalty because that could become an email in itself saying, did you know you've got a load of points sitting on the system you could use uh, to buy something? 100%. Yeah. It just allows for another email. It's, it's just another opportunity to create an email. Absolutely. And it's super, obviously, relatable content. And how much... Sorry, I said it was going to be the last question email. I thought of another one that I think is really key is... Um, how, how much do you guys do things like creating lookbooks or blog posts or other content to use in an email as opposed to just sending an email going like, hey, there's a sale on, there's a new product, buy this, buy this, buy this. How much do you guys focus on the building the relationship and the story before then hitting them with an offer? Sure. I w would say the heaviest, most used email we use is like a product focus one, but we're not saying like, hey, this product is 25% off today. It's, it's just kind of showing different angles of like a shoe or different angles of how a bag can be worn, just kind of give, giving them the idea of how they can use it in real life. So that's like probably the number one most used template we use. And then from there, we use a few of our blogs to like relate with people who have placed an order and need to know more about like, hey, how to care for your bag or how to wear a felt hat. Um, so we'll do emails like that that kind of just tell this story as a whole. I'd say like f find a way to make it like fresh, but don't put too much demand on like, having to tie an email with a whole other piece of creative. Like if that's the demand, every time you send an email, like it has to combine, you know, to a, a whole blog post where you have to have some sort of like great story or great offer attached with it. It's going to limit the total number of like emails you can send. It's not going to be good in conjunction with a software like acquisition.com where it, it's going to rely at least for us because we're collecting so much uh, on a more frequent set of emails to make sure that spam and um, unsubscribe rates are staying like in check with what's normal when you flood again a list with this new batch of email um, segments or email contacts rather. 
Yeah, I, th- I think the keeping in touch point is really, really key because some businesses we talk to say like mm-hmm. people buy our products once or twice a year max or actually like we had the guys from Purple Mattress on the other day and they were like, when do you buy a mattress for your bed? Like five years if you replace it like on time, 10 years is even longer. So they said a lot of their remaster strategy was upselling other products or actually it was just keeping in touch. It was like, okay, we've, we've got five years now to keep you entertained. <laughs> so you buy another one in five years and actually closer to that five year point, the and it's almost like a there's a sort of newsletter and a flow that go out every month. So there's one in the middle, one at the end of the month. End of the month would be like, this is just, here's what's going on at the moment, normal email. And that'd be to different segments, et cetera, et cetera. But the mid-month one would be almost like a, they didn't know it was a countdown, but it would be counting down and slowly getting closer to like, in six months, you're gonna have to think about changing your mattress. Why don't you watch our latest video on how to know when your mattress needs to be changed? And it's like, okay, so you've kept engaged. So you're not in the spam bix. You've been emailing for four years so far and all this kind of stuff. So I think, I think the, the keeping in touch ones is really, uh, really key. And it's interesting to hear how you guys are using a mix of keeping in touch with by this product. I mean, just to touch on your earlier question, which mm. was like, how does acquisition or how does something like this fit into the business as a whole? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're very aggressive advertisers. We're very aggressive marketers. Um, where are sort of like bad, badly phrased theory is that customers are not fishing a pond; they're more like fish in a stream, right? So there's not everyone thinks, oh, you know, I, if I'm out of this product, or if I come up with a better idea tomorrow, that that same customer will be sitting there waiting for me. Hmm. Uh, and we sort of take the opposite approach, which is like full throttle every day. Like we're trying right. to grow as fast as possible. That's being reflected um, in, in our business performance. Hmm. Um, we actually just got word this morning um, we made similar webs list of top 100 fastest growing digital companies. We are number eight in the fashion and apparel market. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you very much. Number seven is Skims, Kim Kardashian. So we're, we hope to be on that list again next year. <laughs> so we are, things are working for us. Um, but nice. uh, for in, we, we look at marketing and advertising as a whole as an amplification tool. It's, it's something to make more people aware of an efficient business or a business that's selling a, a good cost to value ratio of products. And so um, for us, again, we're advertising heavily and aggressively every day of the week, every month of the year. So when we um, first heard about acquisition.com, we were like, okay, how can this fit in our strategy? And at its core, what it really does is bring us closer to the point where we can spend advertising dollars confidently because we know, although um, it may be you know, a day, a week, a month away, we're, we're eventually picking up sales as a result of that traffic coming into the website although it's not happening as a direct result of that sale, or maybe you're losing attribution, which obviously is an issue. We use tools like Triple Whale, which we're huge fans of, um, to you know sort of get a better pulse on that. But acquisition.com and having that amount of emails like coming in and being able to close that many more sales brings us closer and closer to the point where it's like, essentially we're, the business is just paying for traffic and we're doing that profitably at this point. Like there's still a demand for good creative, there's still a demand for good product, but um, we know pretty confidently each and every day that advertisements that we run are gonna come back, whether it be through that direct advertisement, or we're picking up through like a well-calibrated email system like Matt's running here using contacts like acquisition.com. I think the funnest stat for us is it took us about six years to build our email list to the point um, where Matt mentioned previously, it was just under 600,000. And we've been using acquisition for how long now? Retention.com. Oh, excuse me, retention.com. I apologize. <laughs> you know, I'm so bad at doing that. I'm going to get absolutely roasted by Adam for that. Uh, I watched another video where acquisition.com is mentioned, but this is retention.com. It's fine. Adam and I are good friends. It's all good. <laughs> Adam, I am sorry. I apologize, buddy. You can cut that or leave it. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, um, where are we at today, Matt? With- well, we're at uh, closing on 1.5. So it took us, and how many months we've been using it? End of September. End of September. So from September to today, we've tripled our email list. Wow. And it took us five years to get to the point where we were before, and it's it's working. So 
uh, we're huge, huge fans of retention.com. I'm sorry again, Adam. I'll hear about it later. All good, all good. And I guess a really, really important point to bring this back round to is we, there's a lot of stuff that goes without saying here, isn't there? There's you're, you're making good money back from these email lists. I think lifetime value is one of those things that anyone who's been tuning in for more than about six months will know I bang, I bang this drum a lot, so apologies. Um, but as someone who works a lot in, in advertising and customer acquisition, if clients on average, for example, could get two sales from every customer... And we're getting a three to one ROI on Google. It's now six. I mean, maybe call it 5.7 because there's cost for Clavio retention, um, your time all, all across the business. But all of that is insignificant compared to what Google or Facebook or Pinterest or somebody else is going to charge you for advertising. You mentioned, I think it was TripAway you mentioned. You guys are doing something to, to do attribution. And attribution is this lead balloon of the room that I try not to talk about too much because it's so complicated. We've been trying to get a guest on for a while to talk about it. And no, I've, I have agencies like you wouldn't believe queuing up to want to come on here and expose themselves to our audience and stop our merchants. As a merchant, though, attribution, how do you handle it internally? How do you look at Google ads and meta ads and go, Facebook's making us profit? Like, wh- what does that look like for you guys, both kind of the initial customer acquisition, also lifetime value. How do you record those things? So we have the luxury of having a very like understanding founder who's also a marketing brain himself. I, I was actively advertising heavily on Facebook. This is slightly before Matt came um, when iOS 14 rolled out and basically destroyed <laughs> attribution for Facebook. Yep, July 21. I remember it well. <laughs> yeah, what a what a dark time, right? Yeah. Uh, so we were able to see like, okay, we're putting this many dollars in and Facebook first party data is giving us this awesome reward. And mm. all of a sudden that's gone. But Revenue on the website still looks good. So we know that things are happening. So for quite a long time, to be honest, we were flying blind. We were just basically spending. We had uh, a good understanding of like what our ad creative was like, uh, how to build our campaign structure. And we were basically flying blind. We're seeing no ROAS come in on the first party. We eventually hooked up with Triple Whale and we were like, okay, breath of fresh air. Ah, it's still there, just like we always knew it was. Um, but we take a, a pretty liberal approach when it comes to attribution. We're spending a lot of money on a different platforms, right? And so I think that attribution is sort of a fallacy in that yeah. I'm, I'm definitely interested in knowing that that money eventually resulted in a sale. I'm not as interested in exactly and granularly knowing exactly which piece of creative a word that it resulted in when I look at the business as a whole. Now, I'm interested in that granularly when it comes to like perfecting ad creative and getting better at that skill. But as far as the subject of attribution going, like is the business achieving its objectives? We tend to focus on broader metrics such as MER, or we refer to it as broad ROI. Like how many dollars am I putting in this marketing system? How much is coming back in revenue? And for us, um, we tend to run around 20% MER or broad ROI. So as we scale the business, as I mentioned, doubling every year, that has never been out of whack. Although attribution has never fully reflected that um, either in first party or even through a, comp- uh, a third party like Triple Whale. So we are much more willing to see a lower ROAS than we would potentially need fully realized because we know that that's happening on the back end. We know that Facebook and we know that Google are working in tandem to create a sale. We know that Pinterest is you know bringing people into the platform and Google's closing them out when they research the brand name on Google. Yeah, yeah. So we are probably a little bit um, more liberal with it than most might be. Um, that being said, like, because we we have we really are like a marketing company at its at its at its core performance marketing company at that and a direct marketing company at that so we we really have a good handle on all of this but all that to say that the marketing team is you're looking at them basic basically just Matt and I we run all of the ads um, and all of the paid media so 
if that answers your question, like basically like my question to people is like, okay, why are you so interested in exactly and granularly knowing that that's where that sale is coming from? If it's not from the perspective of polishing and getting better at creative, is the business healthy? Um, like you mentioned LTV, like we're big on like, okay, maybe I broke even on this ad and you have to look no further than like subscription based businesses to know that like they're not, they're losing money on the first sale. It takes them a while and they're borrowing against the LTV of the customer to make that acquisition happen. And if you sort of like clinch up and you're like, oh my gosh, attribution's a nightmare. I don't know where my sales are coming from, but you start shutting off ads and sales go down. Okay. There's a, there's an issue here. Like you really need to like take a, a, a broader look at your business and be like, okay, although I can't connect every last sale to an ad spend, I'm losing money by not spending this money. Like, am I okay operating in a little bit of uncertainty? And if the answer is no, like, I'm sorry to tell you, it's not going to go well for you because attribution is not going well for anybody. So you have to be a little bit looser with that. You have to focus on the business objectives as a whole and use broader metrics. Um, again, assuming that your ad creative is good and not junk, you're not just burning money you know, in a dumpster. But um, that has allowed us to scale out of control, borrowing from future LTVs of client of customers and, and at the same time, you know, increasing that LTV. So we know that, okay, they purchase again, their LTV becomes blank. Well, I'm going to borrow a certain amount of dollars from that future LTV and invest it in the acquisition of the customer. And if you're not willing to do that and you don't have a handle on your business, then it's going to be really hard for you to make a case for that, whether it to be your founder, maybe you're the founder to your CFO, you know, God forbid, because uh, he's never going to want you to burn money. Uh, that doesn't exist yet. So that's, that's how we do it. And that's allowed us to, again, to scale incredibly fast. And again, at the, the graciousness of our, our founder who understands that process, which is, is nice that we don't have to go through that barrier of explaining imaginary numbers every time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's perfect. And if any of my clients are listening, like rewind, listen to that 10 more times, please. Um, I, th I think the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the important things I think you've touched on, and, and, and this is where it becomes really frustrating. And GA4 is the next, next kick in the nuts, I'm afraid, <laughs> when it comes mm, to attribution. Yep. Um, we did an event on it with Trustpilot last week in central London. Um, so yeah, we're, we're fully up to speed on that. Performance Max and Google has been another one. Um, the, the, cha the real challenge we've got as marketeers, and I think just to echo what you've said is, customers now do not just click on a single advert and then make an impulse buy. Some do, but we're talking like 10, 20%. And actually, we're not interested in those guys because they'll buy from us and then they'll make another impulse buy and buy from somebody else, you know, in the next next month and they won't stay with us and they're not the customers we really want. It's the retained customers. And a, retain, a good retained customer is going to be a good lifetime VIP customer. They're going to shop in multiple places. And I don't know if you guys have seen this as well, but the last six months with things like energy prices going up, there's crazy things going on in the world. There's big debts left after COVID um, in most government and public pockets. Because of things like that, people are making much more considered purchases, which means when you look on your Google Analytics, it's like, oh, we should spend more on direct. And you're like, we, we can't. That's not a channel. Like, you can't spend more on <laughs> direct. So, but we, we, not by choice, but we had, a, we had a situation with a client recently where they started spending loads of money on social. And our PPC, we, we increased the budget a bit, but the ROAS almost doubled as a result of social doing something. And we had no data to prove that was happening. We can't, we can't say for sure that this person who clicked on a social ad or saw this also Googled us and found something because they changed device. They went home and told their partner who then used their device. And now Google's lost them. You know, there's loads of ways you can lose that tracking link. The, the thing that happened next though is they, they fell out with their social media agency. So they fired them and just stopped all social. Our ROAS plummeted. 
They got a new agency back in, same, and I say get that same spend on straight away. So three or four weeks it was off. They put it back on and Google ROAS just shot up. And that wasn't just people Googling them because they'd done a brand awareness on Google. It was direct campaigns. It was non-brand search. And so I think, I think you're absolutely right. Having this more holistic view to like, what, who, who's our customer? What's the best way to reach them? And what's the best message? Um, and then doing, I, I personally, as even as someone who works on Google a lot, I think a good place for brands to be spending their time right now is just send a ton of traffic into the site that seems logical, that makes sense and do it as tactically as possible and then work on on on-site conversion and lifetime value because those are the things you can control. So make magic to McCoy's ears right there, man. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. You just spoke sweet goodness into that ear. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we talk about that. You're, you're nailing it. Like I I don't envy your position as an agency owner to have to explain that to businesses who don't get it. The truth is like, if they don't get it and it's, it's really a hill to climb, like I I would worry about them long-term, but the truth is, it's like advertising does not solve your issues. There's no sweet words. There's no uh, beautiful photos that's going to solve and inefficient businesses issues, all it's going to do is amplify those. You're going to start burning money. So for us, like, again, we were in charge and, and Matt and myself personally, we're in charge of everything from like making the customer aware. Um, and then I actually run all the web team as well. So as much as we invest in like advertising efficiency, we're also investing in website efficiency. I use this analogy um, often and I'll just use some random numbers. And so they won't be exactly accurate and forgive me here. But the idea is this, that if you're running ads or you're an agency and what have you, and you have, let's say your entire account is running an average of a two times ROAS, you're spending whatever amount of dollars in two times ROAS. Let's say your customer or your, in your case, your customer, the other business owner, or we as the business decide we're going to raise prices 10% that day. Okay. What's going to happen? Like maybe there, you might not see an impact necessarily in revenue because let's say, you know, revenue or total number of volume of sales decreases, but it's enough per you know revenue per uh, unit to make up for that. So you're like, okay, no change to revenue. Whatever. You lose 10%, but you've gained 10% of the price. So you're, it balances. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But what also can conversely happen is let's say that you do actually see an honest drop in revenue. We're well, also going to see that reflected in a decrease in the ad account performance. And the scary thing is that's going to affect every single ad across all of your ad platforms, all of your campaigns, all of your ad sets. You're going to see a dip. Okay, so what do I do? So conversely, if I make a good decision, I decide to um, make my business more efficient. When I say efficient, I mean adding some sort of efficiency, whether it be a CRO efficiency or it be like, turns out we're charging too much for this product, we're going to lower the price. Conversely, you can increase the performance of every single ad creative, ad set, campaign, all ad campaigns in one good decision. So if you're the business and you're like, okay, I'm struggling with advertisement. It's like, okay, well, it's because you're amplifying a crap business. Like you need to get this in in check. You need to make sure that like your website's efficient, your price is good, that when they get it in their hands, they want to reorder because there's no LTV if you get, if they get your product and it sucks. So all of these things are not the job of advertising to fix. Advertising is going to amplify all of those bad decisions. It's the most cryptic. It's the most mysterious piece of your business and you're relying on it to fix all your problems. Yeah, yeah. And I think, again, we've covered this a lot on the podcast before. And we'll, we'll bring it to close now. I've just seen the time. It's been flying by, which is fantastic. But um, <laughs> the last thing to say on that, some, something that we found more and more clients doing recently, partly through our recommendation, to try and solve the crap. I love the, th- I love the, I love the phrase crap business. Um, I, I don't like using it because I wish there weren't any. But um, if you've got a cra- <laughs> crap product, the delivery's rubbish, people aren't going to reorder it, as you say. And if anything, they're going to return it. And your Google Ads is not going to report a return, is it? It's only going to tell you how many you've sold. So the, the thing we've been saying to businesses is go and ask your customers 
ask your good customers and the people that return stuff, phone them up. Why did you return this item? What was bad about it? What can we do as the company to change this for you? We don't have time to cover that as a topic today, I'm afraid, but that would be my advice to anyone is get that information. Analytics and Google ads and Facebook pixel, and all that. they'll tell you what's happened, but they won't tell you why. And that's the thing we always come back to. So look, we're going to have you guys back at some point if you're welcome. So it's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. And sorry we've run out of time um, and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, absolute pleasure to have you both on the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. Everyone listening at home, I hope this has been useful. Um, final question to you both as well then. How can people find you? How can they see the business if they want to connect with you? Are you guys on LinkedIn? Like, What's the best way to reach out? Um, McCoy, let's, let's go to you first. I mean, you can find our business at portleathergoods.com. We also just started a sister company we're really excited about. That's patina.com. Watch out for us. We're coming for you. That's next year. Um, <laughs> And then me personally, uh, I actually I think I'm on LinkedIn, but I, I'm too busy, man. I don't, I don't do social media. <laughs> That's fine. Absolutely fine. But uh, Matt, how can people reach out to you as well? Yeah, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I like to browse that a little bit. Um, but yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. And uh, if you go to Portland Leather Goods on Google, please don't click that brand ad. The amount of times I tell clients not to click on their own ads as well. But um, look, thank you both for joining us today. It's an absolute <laughs> pleasure. Everybody else listening, we're back again next Friday. We've got a few more weeks left on retention.com talking about like, LTV and all that sort of stuff. Um, also to announce, and this is an announcement, I, I, I'm going to announce a big announcement for next week that I'm not going to tell you this week. So stay tuned for next week. Hopefully it'll be next week we're going to announce it. Something quite big's coming. Um, but what we are going to be doing um, towards the end of Feb, which is quite exciting as well, is we're going to have a panel. So we're going to have, we mentioned Adam from retention we've got adam coming back and a few others so make sure you tune in for the last episode of feb and all the episodes in the middle thanks for tuning in today and we look forward to having you again next week thanks for listening to today's podcast you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter for exclusive offers at winningwithshopify.com and don't forget to check out our facebook group by searching for winning with shopify on facebook over and out